All right, welcome to episode 41 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name's Owen Flanagan, uh, PhD. He's the James B. Duke Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Neurobiology at Duke University. Uh, Owen has done work in philosophy of mind, philosophy of psychology, philosophy of social science, ethics, contemporary ethical theory, moral psychology, as well as Buddhist and Hindu conceptions of the self. Welcome, Owen. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hey, Owen, and thank you so much for coming on, man. And so a lot of what we do here on our podcast relates to philosophy and mental health. And in particular, we talk about kind of easing suffering or even increasing happiness. And so we have Owen on here today to talk about Buddhism and how the Buddhists pretty much conceptualize those mental health states. And so, Owen, my first question to you would be in terms of Buddhism, how did they conceptualize the foundation of suffering? What does that look like? Why do we suffer? Yeah, that's a great question because Buddhism is one of those... uh, traditions which starts right out of the gate with the problem of suffering. So um, I think that, and, and Buddhism says, it says the first noble truth, is, it's called, there are four, four truths, but the first noble truth is recognizing that there is suffering and then trying to figure out what causes it and then to figure out how to alleviate it. So how does suffering come in? So Buddhism has a little bit of a different view than maybe we're used to from, say, traditions like Abrahamic religions like Judaism or Islam or Christianity. Um, the, the Buddhist idea is that um, uh, suffering comes, you might say, it comes from natural causes as uh, some natural causes. There are things like uh, death, young children die of leukemia, uh, people uh, have mental uh, disorders and physical suffering. Those are uh, those are registered by Buddhists as a kind of suffering. What they're more interested in is the kind of suffering that we cause ourselves. And um, Buddhists usually talk about what they call the three poisons that are at the root of suffering. And so one of the poisons is, there, two of them are about emotional life, and one of them is about your beliefs. So let me start with the belief one. The belief one is something like this, uh, that in order to be happy and not to suffer, you need a lot of stuff. (laughs) Like, it would be really good to have uh, beautiful clothes, beautiful, great cars, beautiful houses, and a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, So right out of the gate, uh, Buddhists are talking about sort of ordinary human impulses to get fame, reputation, money, sex, drugs, rock and roll. They're onto that. Yep. Now, th- that thinking that you need those things is a mental mistake, a cognitive mistake. You believe that you need them, but in fact, you don't need those things. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the sort of a poison of false belief, believing that you need things that you uh, don't really need. The uh, the other two follow neatly from that because. The other two poisons are, well, that poison is associated with the poison of thirst. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea is that we have sometimes, and we show this in the modern world all the time, insatiable appetites for things. Like advertisers come along and they make us want things that no one, no rational person should want. Mm. When I was was younger than you guys, Mm -hmm. uh, there was a run on pet rocks. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I remember those. Okay, yeah. and they sold pet rocks at places like B. Altman and Company, which is a big New York company that's now out of business. But, you know, you can generate a market for pet rocks by just 
playing a little bit with human desire, which has really quirky properties to it. And then the other uh, poison for Buddhists that causes suffering, these all cause suffering, mm -hmm. is anger. And anger, of course, is when you can't get what you want. It's the kind of emotion that a little child shows when her desires are not being satisfied. So those are the three poisons, thirst or lust or desire for more stuff than you need, anger when you don't get it, and meanwhile, the belief that you need those things. And so Buddhists focus on those things as the sources of suffering that you can control. Some of the other sources of suffering, like natural suffering, uh, pain, uh, diseases, these are much harder to control. Yeah, so, um, for example, the desire for things. These are things that come and go. And probably what it is that Buddhism concentrates on, as I understand it, is what does not come and go. What is something that is uh, permanent amongst this impermanence? And it, it seems to be, it's very interesting that, um, that they point to the, the impermanence of things. Because, it, for example, say you do get the car, say you get the money, say you get the, yep. the girl. Yeah. Once you have it, maybe for a moment, there's there's a feeling of uh, of attainment. Yeah. But then once you have it, it's it's like the way our minds operate. It's like we we're on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we always yep. have this insatiable need for more, and generally we're not satisfied with what it is we have. Yeah. 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 And so, and then Owen, how do in terms of anger, did the Buddhists ever think of um, of anger as ever sort of righteous or as beneficial in any way? Yeah, it's a, well, both things that both of you guys just said are very interesting, important, and controversial inside Buddhism. So, yeah, there's one reading of Buddhism uh, that is, that sort of goes like this. Oh, you know, you need the car, you buy it, you take out a big loan, and you love it for, you know, a month, and then the new car smell is gone, and the bloom is off the rose, and, and then you're back to lusting after the next higher-end car that goes past you you know, on the uh, expressway. Um, and uh, it's an interesting question, though, whether Buddhism sort of, there's so many versions of Buddhism and types of Buddhism. It's at least as diverse as all the kinds of Christianity and Judaisms and Islams. But the uh, some Buddhists bite the bullet and say there's actually nothing that's impermanent. There's, there's nothing that's permanent. Maybe we'll come back to that later and talk about whether nirvana or something like that is a permanent state of bliss. But the... Um, uh, some of them actually think all good things come to pass and actually all bad things come to pass. And if you wait long enough, they'll just be changed. So there's impermanence all the way down. But, but regarding to the, the anger thing, being anger, uh, angry, um, so I learned that uh, I, uh, maybe the best way to answer this question, if it's okay, is I'll just tell you about an experience I had yeah. in 2000. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, I happened to be invited, I was lucky enough to be invited by the Dalai Lama and his team to Dharamsala, India. Mm -hmm. um, and we were talking about things like you just asked about, about anger. And it became clear to me after a couple of days that these Tibetan Buddhists, including the Dalai Lama, were really down on anger. And I kind of know, as also like you guys, I'm a native New Yorker, so I know anger. Mm -hmm. you know? And <laughs> yeah. uh, I know anger, I know how to do it. And it became clear to me that these Buddhists, like, were, they just didn't think we should, like, be a little more chilled 
they actually seemed to think that anger was kind of almost always bad. So I was really, so your question here is a really good one. And I, I asked the Dalai Lama, I said some, I, I asked him this, I said, well, where I come from, my people, us, mm -hmm. people like us, mm -hmm. we think if we were to come upon Hitler in a crowded movie theater or a park when he's about to perpetrate what he did perpetrate, the genocide, and we had a gun, it would be okay to feel outrage at him and to kill him. Mm -hmm. And the Dalai Lama then turned and consulted these other high lamas who usually sat behind him and uh, like Alliance Pride. And he said to them, he talked to them for a minute and then he turned back and he said, you should kill Hitler. Mm -hmm. It's what Buddhists call skillful means. I mean, you got to stop a really bad karmic chain from occurring and killing six million Jews is a really bad karmic chain. Mm -hmm. So if you can stop it, you should stop it. But he said you shouldn't feel angry. And he didn't quite say this, but I've now gone on to study enough about a Buddhism to know what they would say. They'll say things like, A, Hitler, he couldn't possibly have wanted to be the human being with those desires and impulses. So you should have love and compassion for him. Mm. That, that does mean in this case that you have to wipe him off the face of the earth. Mm. But you should think of him as your mother or your son or your daughter or your father. And given enough time, someone like that will be your son or your mother or your father or your brother. Mm -hmm. So it was deeply very different from the way we think about uh, anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could see that, right? I mean, you maybe you're duty-bound to um, break that karmic chain, right? You don't, you don't want for um, six million people to have to die. So of right. course you'll make the decision uh, for the good of all to um, to kill slash stop Hitler. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it doesn't necessarily imply that you have to be angry while doing it. Yeah. So I suppose the Dalai Lama's response makes sense. Mm -hmm. You would think you'd have to be angry, mm -hmm. but maybe that's just the Right. Yeah, maybe that's just like something common for for you to assume at first. Yeah, but not necessarily, right? Uh, I'm sure you you can do what you have to do without necessarily being attached to the outcome. Sometimes you just know this has to be done. And and then so and then oh, and if not anger, right? Would that in that case be detrimental? Like, let's say if somebody were to try to obviously kill Hitler or whatever, wipe him off. Yeah. If they were to be enraged while doing so, would that be detrimental to either party? It's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, uh, you know, even Buddhists have these ideas like, you know, yeah, they, they have ideas that, well, they do think anger is pretty natural for humans to feel. So it's a lot of work to become, to get to this state, like you were saying, where you're not attached to either your anger or to a specific outcome. You've got to bring about the outcome, but uh, it's done with a sense of due seriousness and a kind of a compassion for this person who by virtue of maybe his genes, his culture, the weird constellation of his temperament coming together to just make him a, a terribly ill-formed person, but not, not as it were done by him. Yeah. So your question is a great one. The second question too is about what does it do if you are uh, angry even in a righteous way? Well, we have ideas about this too, right? In our culture, even though we can go to e more easily to anger, we sometimes will say that harboring vengeful feelings or uh, hatred for another person poisons your soul and also the relationship with the other person. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, 
that doesn't, it's easier said than done to recognize that, right? I mean, you recognize it, but what the heck can you do about it? You still, we still are very complicated creatures who it's hard to do things like, you know, everything from to look at a, a person who seems to embody evil, which is a little bit different than seeing a person who embodies, we're much more capable of being sympathetic or empathic to people who have, say, serious mental illnesses. We can take this attitude, uh, sort of an objective attitude towards them and feel love and compassion and want to sort of help them live as well as they can. Um, It's harder when a person sort of seems to embody pure evil uh, in these kinds of uh, cases. there, there are some Buddhists who do think, including the Dalai Lama, he distinguishes sometimes between kinds of anger that are poisonous and righteous anger. He sometimes will say things like, hatred is bad, righteous anger can be motivating and good for the sake of justice. Mm-hmm. So there's some controversy inside the different traditions of Buddhism about whether anger is ever okay or whether we should all work to completely purge it from our souls and our interactions with other people. Yeah. Plus it makes sense if, if you are angry, it could, um, how should I put this? It can deflect resources from maybe what has to be done in the situation in, in the sense that it could, it could kind of cloud your judgment. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So maybe in knowing that is, is more of a, is, is a better reason to not, allow yourself to be angry so so you can make the best possible decision even right. if it's one that would probably traditionally require anger yeah yeah the trouble yeah and but do you think i mean one thing i've thought about guys and you might have opinions about this i mean as you start to go down this road of sort of appreciating the reasons as as you're doing of why like in the hitler case we might want to take a more sympathetic or compassionate attitude if you keep thinking about it, though, it could also, it, it, it's nice because it doesn't go overboard, as it were, you know? Like, I have feelings of, towards Dick Cheney, which are very, very negative and vengeful. And, you know, sometimes I'll use a Buddhist technique to sort of think, well, maybe I should just, but then you can start to feel like you're going down the sort of mafia road, mm-hmm. you know, also, like, of just, you got to do what's got to be done, you know? So Tony Soprano, you know, sends it's out. what it is. So it has, it's weird to think that it's a similar attitude in a way, yeah. in it's sort of calm, efficient, the guy's got to be, we got to get rid of the guy, right. you know, I mean, so it's a very complicated uh, but, type of question. But I think what's so beautiful about the Buddhist way of doing it is the compassion part, which I definitely don't think mafiosos have. Oh, I so, right. So for them, it's sort of a more kind of, um, sto- I guess, cold and stone-faced thing where they're just doing something that needs to be done, where they're so detached from the person that it's pretty much inhuman. Whereas from the Buddhist perspective, it's not that, from my understanding, it's not that we're detached from the person. We actually still care and love the person. We just understand why he is the way he is. And we understand like that we this just it doesn't work for the greater whole in a kind of utilitarian way. So, but what we're also saying is that even though we're doing this thing to you we also want you to know that it's not coming from a place of hatred but it's coming from a place of love for the greater whole and in that love some way we also include you in it because that's why we're doing this right or rather that's why we're doing it the way we're doing it because we actually do still feel compassion for you Mm -hmm. it's a very eloquent way of putting it that's and that's exactly right Mm -hmm. the big difference is you don't have a merely instrumental attitude towards the other person you love and have compassion for them as if they were your mother or your 
child or yeah sibling yeah. exactly yeah yeah so that's all interesting with that oh go ahead did you want to say something well actually um yeah um i mean unless you want to continue no, that thread i actually wanted to ask you um how does buddhism define uh the ego uh, good. Uh, I don't know if I can give a really uh, a good answer uh, to uh, that, but it relates to, so the idea is, uh, it's a little bit, um, you could make an analogy to sort of uh, Christian ideas of original sin. We're all born with these poisons in our soul, and they drive, they drive ego. Yeah. That's sort of what we're about when we come into the world, as it were. We also have, uh, though, an other side to our underlying nature, which is called bodhicitta, bodhicitta. Uh, it means something like, besides your egoistic, self-centered self that wants stuff, you know, wants all the gusto it can get, and wants stuff out of life, there's another part of you which does feel naturally love and compassion towards other human beings. Partly, possibly very narrow in scope, though, because those other desires are always surfacing, and sometimes you want to walk over people or walk through them to get what you need. Yeah. So your compassion can be overridden by the self. So the ego, I mean, it, you could say the ego just contains all the selfish desires, or you could say you start with a, as a person with good parts and bad parts, and the, the work of life and the work of sort of... Um, going down uh, the path uh, to realize the ideals of a, a good Buddhist life, the noble, what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, is you make a commitment to develop the sides of yourself, which are the loving and compassionate sides, and to try to get under control as best you can the uh, egoistical, selfish side of things. Yeah, because uh, one thing that's um, that I like that I read in, in your essay in the book um, in How to Live a Good Life, it's um, it's that the ego was described as this um, grasping sort of um, reactive sort of entity in us that yeah. is the one um, major uh, cause for suffering that's actually under our control. Exactly. Yeah, and what's fascinating about that is I wonder if I mean it's something that we discuss on the show I'm not going to divert to this too much because in general we're speaking about Buddhism yeah. but one thing that would be fascinating to me is if that idea of um, kind of making the ego out to be the enemy or uh, kind of scapegoating it could be popularized like it, or if it could be made into a mainstream sort of idea because I think that's one particular idea at least uh, to me as a uh, maybe it's as a Westerner but let's it's it's an idea that's actually very attractive in Buddhism uh, because yeah it, it if you could reason it it does seem like it is uh, the cause for a lot of suffering right if for right. example if uh, I identify with a particular viewpoint, um, not to get into politics, but say some particular, I'm left or I'm right or all yep. right, all left, something like that, identify with a viewpoint. And then anything I hear outside of that viewpoint, I'll tend to maybe react against and fight to the death to kind of defend whatever my viewpoint is. The other person's doing the same thing. And maybe uh, with awareness of what ego is and how it operates in us, that can sort of help to kind of remedy our 
our view of our own perspectives and maybe other people's perspectives. It might allow for more pluralistic thinking mm-hmm. or yeah. uh, understanding that there's a, a nuance that takes place. Um, so, yeah, I guess I was just drawing attention to the fact that that, that concept of how they explain the ego and how it operates in us is, right, is very right. attractive mm-hmm. in Buddhism. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I'm very interested, you know, my interests are much, uh, I'm very interested in general. In fact, I'm writing a book right now about um, uh, emotions, which I think are out of sync in the modern world. So I do think uh, I'm 71 years old, and I often tell my students and other people that I've never lived through angrier angrier times. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, but I lived through the 60s and 70s, you know, uh, you know, in, in 1963, you know, Malcolm X and John Kennedy, I think, were well, Malcolm X was 65, Kennedy was 63. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were killed in 68. Uh, 67, there were 150 urban riots in places from Watts to Newark. Um, there were, you know, four, you know, children killed in four sweet girls killed by a bomb in Selma, Alabama in the mid 60s. Those were, those were bloody, angry times. But they were much more hopeful uh, and idealistic than now, where the the anger seems to me to be very much like you suggest. It's tribal. It's visceral. When I would say, long before the last election, I would say to my friends all on the left, because I never met anybody on the right, um, (laughs) but I'd say, uh, boy, people are really angry. And they'd say, yes. Those fuckers on the left or on the right are really angry, those assholes. And, you know, so everybody was just sort of viscerally angry and we're so attached sometimes to uh, uh, our own ideas. Uh, We prize them possibly way too much. Uh, We're not as good at listening when we're in reactive modes. And that has something to do, I think, with ego and egoism and selfishness. I I think you're exactly right. So this is... This is a non-trivial problem for modern people, and it's one that, uh, you know, we need all the philosophical and spiritual traditions, uh, plus good common sense to sort of figure out how to get through these times, because uh, I think we now we're in a very serious, there's a very serious problem about um, anger and rage in the modern world. Yeah. And w- the reason why um, I'm harping specifically on ego is I'm wondering if there's a if there's some kind of, because here's the thing, when you're dealing with a population of, and this is just the United States of over 300 million people, yeah. the idea of being able to get out a message that's, I, I'm not I'm not sure it has to be simple, but sometimes you, you want something to kind of be digestible by as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. So I wonder if there is a way to kind of bring, bring that into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a way that's digestible, like uh, maybe we don't have to call it ego, but maybe maybe we do, or maybe uh, maybe there's a way to um, get it to be popular enough to kind of n- not the ego itself, but like since we have this tendency to scapegoat anyway, like uh, will right. uh, will other other people or a tribe or uh, somebody's uh, race or culture, um, it'd be interesting if we can other the ego and uh kind of do that in a in a way that gets made popular but it's an idea that i'm still developing and it's probably not a new idea because it's in it's in buddhism right Mm -hmm. well you know one way to think about doing it though it's a good idea it's a good point 
sometimes, well, but it, there's a paradox, right? And you just point to it. If you say to people, uh, watch out for your ego, uh, you'll make them immediately defensive and they won't want to, <laughs> they might not want to do what's the good advice. There's an indirect way. And actually, Buddhists often talk about something. I mentioned this earlier uh, skillful means. So sometimes you've got to do something that's not the best, but it needs to be skillful. So in the case of offing Hitler, you got to off Hitler. Uh, you need to do it in the right way, though. And related to your point, one thing one can do, this is something I actually work with people about this already, is in the 1970s, there started to be research in economics that's now been well confirmed ever since then uh, by, well, Easterlin was the first economist to show this, but there started to be evidence that happiness doesn't go up as a country's gross domestic product goes up. And then there started to be findings, you know, that we're now all familiar with, or maybe not all familiar with, but roughly to the effect they've been confirmed lots of times. I think Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman says, the biggest flat line in the history of economics is sort of the addition to your happiness once a family of four makes over, now I'm going to plug in a number, let's say it's $100,000 in New York, let's just say. Right. It's around there probably. Mm -hmm. So... That's actually important information because what it means is that the Buddhists were right. You think you need a lot more than you do need for happiness. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, more money will get you more stuff, you know, but then you have the problem of having to hire the staff to run all the houses. Mm -hmm. You have the people who have to park all the limousines and you've got problems on your hands. And there's a lot to be said for less rapacious and when it comes back to ego believing that we all need to be masters and mistresses of the universe, accumulate huge amounts of wealth as protection for what? It's just unclear. And so that's sometimes empirical information of that sort um, can be helpful in diminishing the power of our egoistic desires because they really are, as the Buddha said, some of them are, are real mistakes. And, and then, oh, and so, I mean, I might be wrong about this, but isn't it according to those studies that it also says that there are actually diminishing returns after a certain level of income or wealth? Exactly right. right. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it just doesn't mean so much. I mean, it's unclear, you know, Jeff Bezos and Mike Bloomberg, you know, they can't burn their money fast enough to get rid of it. I mean, it's impossible. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it just doesn't look like that's what matters in life. What matters in life, it looks to be like all the things that we want to teach our children matter, that it's love and friendship and, uh, you know, uh, good civic relations among people who are at least, they might disagree about all kinds of stuff, but at least they are on the same page. They still care about things like truth and ethics and compassion and things like that. They haven't given up on those journeys. And uh, yeah, that's right. And it kind of all seems black and white in terms of anger, where it's, it's like we understand why. And obviously, I think, well, not even just anybody, but a Jewish person would be really just horrified and sort of mortified by the idea of being compassionate to Hitler. But when it comes sure. to, I mean, I can mean less, I am, um, what's the word? Less, um, when it comes to sort of political views, right, that are obviously, I mean, they are to some extent and to a vast extent effective in terms of the way they impact people. And that's unquestionable. But I think the way we kind of view it is that we lump it all together, that it's not only that like Hitler is on the other side and he's evil and we need to hate him, but it's also Republicans are evil or libertarians right. are evil. And right. so the idea when it comes to the ego, kind of the thought that I had in mind was that 
we sort of lump everything together and people sort of struggle with nuance with seeing that you know for the most part republicans are not evil people okay. are they are they incredibly misguided yeah absolutely yep. and do they sort of fall into confirmation bias absolutely but if right. you actually talk to some of these people they're not bad people that's their, right their views are obviously pretty skewed and of course it's easy for us to say that because we're on the other side yep. and i'm sure they're definitely right about some things but the idea is that the way we kind of see it is that like these people are sort of mortal enemies whereas it's understandable with hitler not so much in the u.s with republicans yeah that's right no no i think you're right about that exactly that we could change our attitudes you know uh some yeah. how far we could go um you know is a interesting question i mean you know, sometimes there are resources even in our own traditions you know i mean when i say own traditions i mean you know I'm more of a secular sort of, you know, village atheist type, really. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, my, you know, I was raised as a Roman Catholic, and I know that there are resources in that tradition to be, to develop the kinder, gentler, more compassionate uh, side. And same thing for Judaism and Islam, of course. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, so it can be helpful. I mean, you know, cities like you guys live in, you're in a city where about 40% of the people are born in a foreign country. There's all kinds of different modes of being human and some of them are a little smarter than your native new york one right. I, by the way i here's a here's an interesting factoid i've been doing a lot of work on the anthropology and cultural psychology of thing emotions like anger mm -hmm. huge, there's huge cultural variation so here's a funny one for you new yorkers uh japanese people even the ones who score high in what they call trade anger that might that's a person sort of on the irascible side mm -hmm. someone you know um, they don't get road rage <laughs> in the same circumstances as New Yorkers. Uh, and it's just an interesting cultural difference. You know, it, it has to do with like, you know, being raised in certain ways. Like if you ask an American what they want to do when they get angry, they say, punch you in the nose. Mm -hmm. If you ask a Japanese person what they want to do, they say, leave the room. Huh. So there's all kinds of different moves we can make in ways of developing ourselves. And sometimes there are traditions like Buddhism say that give us a little bit of a a few ideas about how to tinker with the equipment, with the ego, and with, you know, with the way we're formed. Right, and it kind of seems like something one could do in therapy, because I mean, a lot of what therapists do is essentially they talk to their clients about pretty much different coping mechanisms for whether we're talking exactly. about anger, sadness, anxiety, and sometimes what patients say is that like, oh shit, like I didn't even know that there were these alternatives. <laughs> I thought that this way of dealing with That's anger right. was literally the only option okay. available. To okay. Yeah, uh -huh. you couldn't be more right. People always say, in fact, when I sort of have been going around the last. 15 years or so saying, have you noticed that Americans are really pissed off? They're really angry all the time. Mm -hmm. And people would just say, it's normal. Yeah. And I, well, you know, it's not exactly, I mean, it might be statistically normal, but it doesn't mean that we can't sort of make a little adjustment. And you're totally right. Like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapies are based on various strategies to leverage wherever you can get to yourself, you know, to, I remember actually, um, uh, there's a there's a, a, a you know a little saying in stoicism mm -hmm. that I remember learning to use a long time ago when I was at lines of the DMV back when I was young in New York the DMV was allowed to torture everyone <laughs> by making the lines forever and nice to you and things like that but <clears throat> you know if you repeat to yourself be indifferent to indifferent things mm -hmm. it's amazing how much that can chill you out yeah. you know like subspatial eternitatis as they said this doesn't matter at all. The universe was not, you know, put there to make sure Owen Flanagan doesn't get stuck in traffic or gets to the line at Starbucks, you know, exactly when he wants to. Right. And it's funny how this little 
practices like in mental health or from these traditions can be very helpful. And, you know, you got to find your own place to leverage yourself, I think. And it's, I'm so happy that you brought up CBT because I feel like the pretty much our disciplines go through one of the major, I guess, criticisms of it, or both of them are actually pretty similar, or they are pretty much the same. So like for CBT, the major criticism that kind of our field gets is that, that we're about happiness, that we're just sort of, the goal of CBT is to eliminate negative emotions and it's to create happiness. And you mentioned in your book that Buddhism pretty much faced the same kind of criticism, right? That it's like, right. it was sort of unrealistic because Buddhists try to make you happy. And then um, it's obviously not really possible over, you know, kind of a grand scheme or a grand sort of um, way of seeing life. And so, Owen, can you talk about just the scientific article that you mentioned in your book and kind of how that was misinterpreted as being a way to find pure happiness, whatever Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a funny moment. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah. Uh, so after uh, these meetings that I had with um, in India, I made, uh, it was, uh, there were neuroscientists there who were uh, working on happiness and uh, studying it by using brain imagery. And uh, so some of this research started to be picked up and there's a particular monk named Mathieu Ricard, mm -hmm. uh, who you'll see, if you go online, you look up Mathieu Ricard, uh, he is will sometimes be described as the world's happiest person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, some, some of my friends, uh, scientists, did studies with Mathieu and then they found out that there was some correlation between positive mood and how much left frontal activity there is in your brain. Mm -hmm. This doesn't quite work for left-handed people, but let's make believe they don't exist like most people do already. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, they, uh, but anyway, you know, most of us, the good news about the human race is that most people feel a little bit positive, like more positive than negative. But... There's some there's some signs that if you look in a person's brain, a super happy person, there'll be very leftward activity in the frontal cortex. Mm -hmm. That's what they found in Mathieu Ricard. And then people uh, started to, I wrote a little paper about it. And I just said, this is an intriguing hypothesis that somehow or other engaging in Buddhist practices, believing in Buddhist truths could have some small contribution to make to being people making people happy. But I also pointed out that for Buddhists, happiness wasn't the only or the main thing even, at least happiness in the happy, happy, joy, joy, click your heel sense. <laughs> um, and, uh, but immediately uh, I was sort of, uh, there was a headlines in Reuters and Associated Press that uh, Duke philosopher discovers happiness spot <laughs> in the brain or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. So I had my 15 Warhol minutes mm -hmm. uh, and did lots of interviews. But it was just interesting, you know, uh, everybody was interested in like, where is the spot? What do I do to activate it? And so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. By the way, this particular guy, Mathieu Ricard, when I was uh, in India and I had first met Mathieu, uh, my, I said to my son, look how happy he is. Mm -hmm. And my son Ben said, Dad, he's not married and he doesn't have teenage children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> thought, so no wonder he's happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a cute observation. Yeah. But in any case, you know, uh, this criticism, I, I had never, I didn't know even that it was sometimes foisted against uh, CBT. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we do live in a time when there is a, a cheap snake oil version of happiness that's sort of out there, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, that isn't the book that clearly almost no great world spiritual tradition nor any therapeutic tradition that I know of thinks that you ought to have that mm 
I mean, there are probably drugs for that. Maybe. I mean, they're, they would be drug. They would have great street value if there were drugs for that. I guess is the way to put it. You know, what we want people to do, in my understanding of CBT, is this: we want people to be emotionally balanced. Yep. We want people to have meaning and purpose. We don't want them tripping over their own feet, which in human cases is often tripping your own, over your own ego or your emotional dispositions that go back a long way in life and get in your way. Um, and, um, you know, so insofar as these both therapeutic and philosophical traditions aim at a good human life, it seems to me, at least luckily, it's never cheap, you know, snake oil kind of hedonic, you know, happiness that you know that so uh and order and buddhism buddhism usually puts it this way traditional buddhisms did anyway buddhism is a solution if there is one to the problem of suffering that you cause yourself once you get the suffering under control are you happy god knows that's a different question yeah so then would you say buddhism is more about acceptance rather than happiness more of like a non-resistance to your own uh, tendencies, your own neuroses, or maybe to things that happen in the environment. Sense just to not entitlement. sense of entitlement, not yeah. to add any extra unnecessary suffering onto a situation or something along those lines. Exactly. Yeah. There's enough suffering. You cause some of it. Why add to it? And figure out where you can how to sort of change yourself up in various ways, tinker here and there. Uh, and uh, and try to change yourself so you're not uh, causing either yourself or the people you care about, which is hopefully all the world, uh, to have uh, more suffering. That's right. And and not to be, again, it goes back, uh, the, the word attachment is important here. You're absolutely right about that. Because Buddhists, Buddhists think that one of the main causes of unhappiness and also causes of anger is a kind of a rigid... Uh, desire to get certain things, uh, whether it be money or the girl or the car, um, or persuade other people that it's our way uh, or the highway kind of things. That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's very analogous. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say it's very analogous to CBT. So they're pretty much the same goal. If we could kind of conceptualize it in one way, it's pretty much to reduce suffering rather to engender happiness. So it's like if happiness is a byproduct of that, that sensation. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, um, so if I remember correct, so I learned this from uh, listening to uh, lectures by Alan Watts. This was some yep. time ago. Yep. But uh, if I recall correctly, uh, the Buddha described enlightenment as the end of suffering and he never said what it was he purposefully yeah. said what it wasn't or sorry rather what it um what it's the end of he gave like a negative sort of statement by any chance do you happen to maybe know maybe why he framed it that way as opposed to saying what it is instead he just said it's it's the end of something Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, Alan Watts was a very important popularizer of, in particular, Zen Buddhism. Um, and uh, I don't remember exactly why he would have said that, but I guess it's plausible. Um, it's plausible in, in several ways. I don't know. You know, by the way, the Pali Canon, which is the translations, I mean, well, it was in Pali, of the Buddha's sayings plus all the rules for being a good Buddhist, it was compiled in about the second century. 
it's 14 times the size of the Old and the New Testament put together. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, and, and kind of everything's in there, you know what I mean? So that, so um, uh, what, what particular uh, text Alan Watts was referring to, and by the way, it's not a finished text because, because it's not the word of God, Buddha's just an ordinary person like us, but he realized himself, he became enlightened. There are commentaries upon commentaries. So those in every tradition, whether it be Japanese or Korean or Chinese, or even now in uh, English language, commentaries are also part of the text so you know ultimately it's one of those funny texts where almost everything gets said at one point or another but let me see if i can make a sense of this idea about not explaining what it is um the um uh so there's various kinds of states which are states of enlightenment and they're described sometimes as the absence of the poisons hmm. so what, at least what you know about a realized person is that he or she is not believing that she needs all the stuff in the world, an insatiable appetite, and doesn't get angry when he or she doesn't get it, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the absence of those desires. Uh, there's something in Mahayana Buddhism, which is uh, sort of a... Uh, Buddhism is divided into many, many different sects, but... Mahayana Buddhism is um, uh, more recent than the traditional Theravada Buddhism. In Mahayana, um, what all of us should want to do is become a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva is like a compassionate Buddhist saint who vows to keep coming back as long as there is suffering in the world. And they take a vow to develop the virtues of compassion, which means the desire that all sentient beings are relieved of suffering, not just humans. Uh, loving kindness to bring something positive in place of the, ha- of the suffering, possibly happiness, but who knows. And then there's a few other ones, a uh, few other uh, what are called the infinite virtues. Um, one is being happy about everyone's achievements even in zero-sum games like that is you know the only time i ever see this occur in the modern world like at forest hills you know uh nadal and uh federer might have a match and one of the even the loser says wow you brought out the best in me you know that was the greatest i ever played thanks to you roger um but so going down the bodhisattva path it takes a really long time to achieve it and sort of the people who are there are Buddhas and and they're realized human beings but the Bodhisattva keeps coming back so you don't get full-on descriptions of like what it's like and then they keep coming back until all suffering is is relieved and then finally there's what final Nirvana and final Nirvana is controversial but it's often described not as going to heaven where you get to hang around with all the other good people from human history uh, and be with grandma and grandpa and all the people you love. It's actually your ego is dissolved back into the bosom of the universe. So you sort of, it could just, it could sound like annihilation, but you've done such a good job about freeing your soul of attachments and desires that now you're ready to be reabsorbed into the one thing from which you came. 
Hmm. Something like that. There are variations, though, because there are Buddhist sects that have heavens and hells worlds and that are a lot like, you know, familiar types of heaven and hell. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Tibetan Book of the Dead was like the wildest thing I've ever read. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, oh my God, have That's you ever right. read it? I've heard of it. I haven't it, read it. Oh my God. God. It's frightening, like terrifying. It's like anything yeah. that could happen in the world times 10 in terms of sheer terror. Exactly. That's uh-huh. right. Well, Buddhists give, give themselves a really long time horizon for things to happen. And, uh, you know, like Dante's Divine Comedy is a little bit like takes you into the different levels of hell for us. But yeah, the Buddhists have you know, all these different realms and things like that. I once asked a Buddhist, um, uh, actually one of the Dalai Lama's team members, I said, just tell me as a Roman Catholic, you know, like my people, you die and then you go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's one and you're done. I said, how many reincarnations do you think an average person, guy like me, would need to uh, attain nirvana? (laughs) And uh, the answer was this. Turns out 84,000 is a kind of a magic number for Buddhists. Mm -hmm. So this guy said this. He said, imagine a mountain range 84,000 times the size of the Himalayas in front of you. (laughs) And imagine that each day you walk up to it with a soft piece of Tibetan cloth and you touch it. Mm -hmm. And that's a lifetime. Each touch is a lifetime. Mm -hmm. It'll take you as many lifetimes as it would cause you by touching that mountain range 84 times the size of the Himalayas to entirely erode mm-hmm. before wow. you reach nirvana. So it's very long. Wait, so There's, you're saying I won't reach nirvana in this lifetime? It'll take you a very, very long time. Now, of course, there are other Buddhist sects. I mean, you're going out and getting paying customers, and you say, I, I have a different kind of Buddhism, one that will get you to heaven right away. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. Right away. That might sell better among uh-huh. uh, impatient people like ourselves. But the point is, uh, it's a very different sort of view about how much time there is and how much time the project of overcoming ego uh, and how difficult it is. You might say that's a that way of speaking is a measure of how difficult the project is. Yeah. yeah. And what exactly is uh, samsara? Oh, samsara is this. Uh, it means the sort of cycle of suffering, and some people interpret it in just very ordinary terms, like, you know, uh, we all, you know, go through, you know, childbirth for the mom, at least, is very painful. Um, and then, uh, you know, there, in a human life, there's pain and suffering. You just kind of know what, you never know when it will kind of creep up on you. You know, in many ways, our lives are, are less fragile now than they used to be. I mean, we have vaccinations, and we have decent medicine, and so on and so forth. But you think, you know, in previous centuries, there's a, uh, you know, you go, I used to bike ride in Massachusetts with a good buddy on Sundays, and we'd stop at an old colonial cemetery, and you'd sit there having a, a drink, and you'd, you look, and you realize, oh, that whole family was wiped out by the flu in the winter of, you know, 1783. Yeah. There's a famous, um, uh, so samsara has to do with the inevitability of suffering. There's a beautiful uh, sutra. Uh, which is about a woman who uh, her baby dies, newborn baby. And she goes to the Buddha and she says, uh, please bring my child back, like Jesus did with Lazarus or something like that. And the Buddha says to her, uh, go to each house in the village and ask them for to fill this cup that you have here with mustard seeds. 
And once you come back with a full cup of mustard seeds, I will resurrect your child. However, do not take mustard seed from any house where they've ever lost any loved one. So she goes and knocks on the first door and says, do you have mustard seeds? Everybody says, yes. And then she says, but have you ever lost anyone you love? And of course, after 20 doors, she has no mustard seeds. And she goes back to the Buddha and she's able to put her baby, her dead baby, onto the funeral pyre. And, it, and that sutra ends, as they often do, with everything's impermanent, strive on with awareness. Yeah. So it's a, so that's samsara is that cycle. Now some, some Buddhists, depending on how metaphysically sort of complicated the views are, will say that you know eons and worlds are constantly repeating themselves for all eternity, and they themselves cycle through periods that are, you know, ages that where happiness comes for a little while, and then there's terrible degeneration, and so on and so forth. So uh, that so there's there's both the individual samsara, the cycle of suffering, and then there's also cultural and probably cosmic samsaras. Yeah. There's what's interesting is um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. Uh, you ever heard of? He's a spiritual teacher. Uh, his name is Eckhart Tolle. Sure, I've heard of him. Yeah, so yeah. He, sh he shared the stage with uh, Matthew Ricard and um, also the Dalai Lama before mm -hmm. on a few occasions. Yeah. So why did I bring him up? So he wrote this book. Um, it's the called Power The Power of Now. Now. Yeah. Okay. And in the book, um, there's actually his interpretation of, uh, or it's not maybe just his, but I'll just for simplicity, I'll, I'll say that it's his. He, uh, when he was talking about samsara, he actually referred to samsara as... Um, so, of course, it's the cycle of birth and death. Now, what was interesting is the way he referred to it is, um, so it's like the cycle of birth and death of like uh, thought forms. Okay. In, in the yeah. sense that like you, we keep reincarnating into new uh, thought forms that we sort of uh, identify with. Yep. And uh, make the same as us with the, you know, yep. egoic attachment and all that. Yep. Yeah. So what was interesting is when he described what it would be like to be outside of, you know, to break out of samsara is to be uh, present to the moment because then you wouldn't be reincarnating into these thought forms, so to speak. And, wouldn't, right. and then you'd be breaking that cycle in that sense, which was a fascinating interpretation. Yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. It's really brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So it it went away. So it went away from like literally taking it literally as birth and death exactly. into that's that right. sort of interpretation, which yep. which yep. is interesting. Yeah. No, and that's very helpful because that is very congenial to a Buddhist view that basically, you know, the self is living and changing moment by moment. Consciousness is changing. Its objects are changing. The environment around us is changing. You know, like we're in the we're, you know there's flux inside the mother of all fluxes <laughs> where everything's fluxing <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so you can either decide to be way behind yourself you know uh in the past which is now long gone or way ahead of yourself in the future which is uh, long in the future or you can just try to sort of have be as present as you can be right now yeah. that's right including working on yourself in the present absolutely and uh, i'm really sorry I no problem go for it one thing actually i want to see what you think about this it's not even really to yeah. yeah so um there was this um so it's i think it's going back again to i forget if it was eckhart Tolle or alan watts who said this 
something about they were describing how the Buddha said, if you're shot by an arrow and you're hit by the arrow, are you going to, and, and let's say this arrow represents suffering or some kind of an issue. That's right. Are you going to think about where did this arrow come from? <laughs> Who shot this arrow? Yeah. What is the right. size, shape, and characteristics of this arrow? All that. Or will you just, to <laughs> remove the pain, will you just remove the arrow? Exactly and, right. Yeah, so me and Leon have talked about this before, too, in, in, terms, of, um, in terms of psychotherapy, in terms of uh, how much... So I know this is completely nuanced, and the only reason I'm bringing it up is just because it's a cool-sounding thing. It's not really to yeah. push this point. But it was interesting that... Uh, he's like, are you are you gonna really think about what are what are the origins of this suffering, or will you just try to remove the suffering um, right away? In terms of just being very practical and maybe uh, as an example, say that suffering is something that uh, may have happened to you in your uh, past. I, I suppose then by being present to what you're currently working on or doing you wouldn't be thinking about it anymore. And in that sense, you'd be removing the suffering without necessarily having to think about what caused it. Right. Yeah. No, that sounds right. The, uh, yeah, the parable of the arrow is exactly as you said. And, and sometimes the Buddha um, and Buddhisms will say, we're an entirely therapeutic theory. We have no interest in like religion and metaphysics and things like that. It's all about pulling the arrow out and fixing the wound right now. Uh, on the other hand, there are other parts of Buddhism, as you can imagine, where sometimes knowing the history of something, and this is true in therapy, you guys know infinitely better than I do, you know, every once in a while you do need to know, you know, sometimes the history is not that important. I mean, you know, there are certain kinds of addictions which maybe result from trauma. Other kinds of addictions, just like you develop a taste for the nicotine or you develop a taste for the liquor, and then all of a sudden you're really addicted and you're in trouble. And at those points, really, you're at the point of the arrow in the person, right? It isn't that interesting to go back. In other cases where there's the causes are trauma, you might have to work on and reconfigure another whole bunch of other kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, but I think, uh, yeah, this idea of uh, Buddhism is kind of a, uh, a practical, entirely practical approach to life. In fact, you know, even though you guys know, as most people do, Buddhism's talk about, you know, bodhisattvas flying on lotus leaves and, you know, like the Tibetan Book of the Bed, there's 100, 150 bazillion areas of hell you can go to and there are infinite number of past worlds. Actually, in the Buddha's first sermon, one of his students says, Master, tell me, does the world have an initial cause or does it go back? Was it always here? Uh, what happens after you die? Do you go on to another world? Uh, is the soul separate from the body or are they the same thing? His students ask him 11 metaphysical questions and he says, don't worry about them. They're not practical. Mm -hmm. I love now that. that, but the tradition then eventually develops to have answers for all those questions, <laughs> <laughs> which are depending on your perspective, kind of wild and crazy and okay for Buddhists, but maybe maybe not for modern secular type of people, yeah. you know, where you need a more sort of a, you know, a more tame or what I call naturalized Buddhism. You got you might have to get rid of some of the, you know, views which are maybe not necessary. It's like, you know, people can believe that Jesus's message is a good one, even if they certainly don't think he's the son of anybody except Mary. Yeah, gotcha. God. That's true.
And what's and what's so interesting about Buddhism is the fact. Well, interesting, I guess, about the way sort of um, Buddhism was reconceptualized a bit later on with the metaphysical answers was that initially the idea was not that the world itself was just impermanent, but it's like you are impermanent too. And right. it's like, by the way, buddy, you don't have a human soul either. So these yeah. questions don't really make sense in the context of that of that knowledge. That's right. And then right. so, oh, and what, how would we conceptualize anatman, and how does that differ from the conception of the human soul? Yeah, good. Uh, this this is a. Uh, if I answer this question correctly, I cr I collect the Nobel Prize in philosophy because no one has been able to uh, answer it correctly. Uh, the first thing to say about so 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 the best way to think about this is probably in historical terms. So okay, there's an analogy, but it's not a, like it's not an identity. So we know from both Western philosophy which has a view called mind-body dualism, right? Yep. That I have a non-physical part of me, which is my mind or my soul. Uh, and this is picked up, of course, in the Abrahamic traditions. So when my body dies, decays, and disperses, the essential part of me, which is my mind or my soul, can go on for its eternal non-physical life. Right. Then, and then you add in things like there's a resurrection of the body later, but let's leave that aside. Mm -hmm. Well, it looks as if Hindu, what is now called Hinduism, it didn't have that name until recently, all the different sort of traditions on the Indian subcontinent, that there were the, the Brahmin, what we now call Brahmins, priests, high priests. And they had the view that they had something they called Atman. Atman is similar to a soul in the Abrahamic or mind-body dualism sense. And they thought that at, at, their Atman was really close to Brahman, the nature of the universe. It was, and it was, it was dying to get back and be one with that. And it was a permanent essence. It was something which didn't uh, undergo change. The Buddhists came along, and it looks like the Buddhists were down on Hinduism because they didn't like this elite Brahmin class. This is partly a sociological or political explanation. They thought these guys were kind of full of themselves. They happened to also be rich and prideful. And they uh, were self-impressed about the closeness of their soul to the soul of the universe. So, plus they used this to enforce the caste system. You see? So, they were the highest class. So, Buddha said, I don't know what you have, but you don't have Atman. And that's the doctrine of non-Atman. <laughs> mm -hmm. So first pass, it's kind of negative. It goes back to something we were talking earlier. It's not yet a positive thesis. It just says there is no permanent diamond in the rough that is your essence that can that get to heaven. You are just, like all of us are humans, ever-changing thingamajig. Mm. Now, because Buddhists didn't think in materialistic terms, they didn't think that what you are is a mammal, it's made up of a brain and a body, and when you die and decay, then you are gone for good. So the doctrine that you're not a self was associated with their anti-egoism, and then it started to get developed into a pretty distinctive view that whatever you are, not only is your body always changing, but your mind is always changing and your personality is always changing, but somehow or other, and that's your, your anatman, insofar as you have any, but that keeps changing, and when you die, 
and then they were, went back to old Hinduism. They said, but in some weird sense, you could still go on even. Yeah. Your Anatman could be, and then they, then they sort of borrowed again from Hinduism and said it could be reincarnated or reborn mm. in another human being. Right. So uh, there it gets into the sort of wild and woolly area. Most people I know uh, in, uh, in America, North America, have invented, we have, uh, Buddhism's always assimilate and accommodate. There's something called Buddhist modernism. I call it naturalized Buddhism. Uh, it basically is a Buddhism which sort of says we're Buddhists or kind of Buddhists, but we don't believe in things like rebirth or uh, we get the metaphor. Uh, uh, we believe in it in individual lives being reborn, but not literally rebirth or maybe in karma, things like that, mm. depending on the kind of karma. Sure, believe that what goes around comes around in ordinary life, right. but there are there are bad people who get to the end and might even be happy in that happy, happy, joy, joy, click your heel sense. So the cosmos doesn't deliver ultimately the kind of justice that either in the Abrahamic traditions are delivered by God or in robust reincarnative systems that have kind of impersonal karma that resolves everything. You know, more secular people just d tend to deduct those and have a different sort of secular kind of Buddhism. Right. And the way I remember, the way I kind of conceived the Buddhism from what I read about it in, in kind of that context yeah. is that it wasn't so much, uh, and this was like, this made no sense to me, but I'm going to present it here anyway. Sure. So the way that I read it was that essentially when the person dies, his his or her karma essentially, um, it sort of dissipates. And then somehow or other, it sort of reconstitutes again, and then it reconstitutes in a new body. That's right. I, I don't really know what that means, but okay. Well, yeah. that's why that's why if you and I can figure it out, we get the Nobel Prize. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No one is really able to figure it out. I mean, but you know, you might like you know, I was raised knowing that or having learned that the Trinity, mm -hmm. three persons and one God, is a mystery, right. and no one can explain it fully to you. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes Buddhists will revert that way. Some some schools of Buddhism are very very specific. They'll say something they like after a person passes away. If they're going to come back as a human, let's talk about that case, because you might come back as a sore rat or a cockroach. Mm -hmm. If you're going to come back as a human, you, your karma getting reconstituted will be right next to a, uh, a as it were, a sperm and a movum at the right time, about seven weeks after you die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but, but it's no different in this respect from, say, you know, Orthodox Judaism or Catholicism. There are answers to all these questions given inside traditions by, you know, what's either is called casuistry, but it doesn't have necessarily a derogative meaning. It means right. that smart theologians have to sort of give answers that we have about things like smart kids like you come along and say, wait, explain to me how exactly this works. Mm -hmm. And they've got to start to tell a story. And they do have stories like that. Right. And, you know, to go back to Alan's question about othering the ego, I wonder, do you think that it would be possible if, let's say, if we were to kind of help, I don't know, the general public or just other people to kind of accept an Atman, that there really is no permanent self or that the ego really is this sort of ever-changing thing, do you think that it would be easier for people to detach themselves from it to some extent from the ego? Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, uh, you know, I, um, I, I thought about it, but I don't know what to say about it okay. because uh, sometimes you... 
when you say sort of deconstructive things, even to secular audiences, they can, they can find it disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you might think, oh, you know, if you just tell people, really, you believe in an afterlife of any sort? And you say something like, no, oh, come on. Ever since Darwin, we know that we're just animals, we're other mammals, we're very sophisticated. But when, we, when you die, you're gone. And then someone says, well, how long are you gone for? I said, all eternity. <laughs> yeah. That's actually, I've seen it in my life. And there's a, because I'm interested in this, these conflicts between what some of us call the scientific image of a person and the humanistic image of persons. Mm-hmm. There are conflicts. And, uh, you know, we, are, we still live in an age where this is, some of these messages are hard to get. So if you sometimes say, guess what? You don't have one of those things you always thought you know, an essential self that is stable over time. That actually, I found, can be as disturbing and disquieting as it can be helpful yeah. in my personal experience, but I don't work in therapeutic context. No, no, you're likely right. I've seen this happen too. Just even people I've known outside of therapy. I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty much it's challenging, not only obviously a worldview, but also challenging their sense of self. Exactly, right. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, I, I try to make even my students, well, not even, it's who I deal with mostly, <laughs> you know, I try to make them aware that when people, for example, in America, uh, you know, in certain school systems or states are concerned about teaching Darwinism, yep. I try to make them sympathetic to the reasons that they have for being disturbed by it. Mm-hmm. And the students can get it if you ask them to be, you know, it's a little bit like we were talking about attachment at the very beginning. Yep. I'm not asking them to give up their belief in evolution and be sympathetic with creationism as a, as a plausible doctrine, yep. but I call upon them to be sympathetic with how much that changes and disquiets the world and just is disenchanting given right. prior perspective of that we're made in God's image mm, and yeah. our our fate is a uh, is a heavenly one and uh, and what it means for human lives I mean these are these are areas where we have to be at least sensitive and compassionate to right. the beliefs of the other yeah. And I remember one time, like a friend of mine actually said something that really blew me away. And so she, um, so she struggled with self-esteem for pretty much the vast majority of her life. And like, so my thing was just like, I would always compliment her and I would always sort of focus on her strengths. And one day I asked her, I said, like, I don't get it. Like, how come none of these compliments sink in? This doesn't make any sense to me. Like, do you think I'm lying? Or like, what do you, yeah. what, do you what do you think is going on in my mind? And so she said, no, it has nothing to really do with that. It's just terrifying for me to accept an alternative sense of self. She's like, because, yeah. So she's like, for me, the way I see myself as toxic as it is it actually gives me comfort in knowing that this is actually who i am that this is my identity so it's like yeah yep. so it's so fighting that barrier was nearly impossible yep. yeah uh, i love that actually you know what i was what i'm writing about actually this morning before i even talk to you guys is you know when i think about things like changing the way we do certain emotions like anger we've been talking about anger so anger is a good example mm-hmm. sometimes people find it disturbing because it asks them to change the way they are yeah. You know, you say, well, you could do anger in a totally different way. Imagine yourself like loving Hitler mm-hmm. or trying to think when you wake up in the morning about, you know, having compassion and sympathy for Trump. And people have a hard time with that. They say, I don't want to be that person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. We all do. I don't mean to talk as if other people are not our, myself. Yeah. In this kind of case. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, we definitely, it seems like we definitely hold on to our sense of self in like any sort of way, it doesn't matter, whatever, even if we know in some way, and I do think that we all do this to some extent. So even if we know what we're doing is detrimental to our well-being, for us, at least it's comforting knowing that we're doing something that kind of feels right. And so um, for my kind That's of, right. uh, yeah, and so for my, um, I don't, damn, I want to focus on this, but I just want to kind of warn you guys that my memory of this is very vague. Um, okay. This actually goes into the work of Scott Barry Kaufman, who studies um, pretty much authenticity. I know Scott. Yeah, okay. Cool. Okay. So he pretty much studies authenticity and personality. And so the kind of research that he talks about, the I don't remember exactly what he said. So I, I'm afraid of butchering it, but whatever, I'll give it a shot. Um, so he pretty much said that for authenticity, what sometimes feels right for people in terms of the authentic self of doing something that is like, you know, that is them to in their minds is actually really sort of detrimental to their overall well-being. But the reason why they kind of hold on to it is just for the reason that it just feels authentic. They're like, so if you try to give them new coping mechanisms, they would say, well, you want me to be a different person and yep. so the argument is no 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 we just want you to cope better but it's very hard to make a distinction between one's coping mechanism and one's personality because for mm -hmm. them they're like these are just my pattern behaviors this is who i am and so i remember even somebody else once told me that they pretty much said that well, like well, i was in a kind of argument with my friend and so she's like you know my friend kind of is very braggadocious and um she sort of tends to put people down and i was like hey here are these different things that you do and they really upset us and they particularly upset me and so her friend's response was pretty eye-opening she said well it's like you don't like my personality and i don't really know how to change that and yeah. i was like wow yeah right? powerful yeah. Mm -hmm. well and you see the same kind of phenomenon i mean uh, in addictions and things like that, where, you know, sometimes in the case of certain kinds of addictions, you know, children were introduced to a form of life in which uh, sort of they learned, you know, we are drinking people, we are, you know, the people who do these same things, and they become identity constitutive over time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, getting rid of the addiction is not only getting rid of sometimes the, uh, the bad substance of choice that you now have this insatiable appetite towards, it's changing up the person who you are, you know, and uh, who you hang out with and where you can go. And, uh, yeah, that that can be, for all sort of reasons you were just saying, too much of a price. Or we don't understand what could be on the other side that could be better sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes people feel so hopeless that they don't think there is a better. So they're like, no, but this is just who I am and this is sort of inevitable. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. Um, there has to be a certain kind of sensitivity when – Depends on what kind of message you're trying to convey to the person, mm -hmm. but you have to meet them where they're at. Right. So, yeah, if somebody is closed off or they're in some kind of place of despair, I mean, you can't just say, you can't open with, oh, so you have this thing called the ego inside <laughs> of you that resists <laughs> right. and reacts to anything outside of your reality. And yeah. if you were just aware of that and present yeah. to the moment, yeah. you'd be completely fine, so don't worry about yeah. it. You can't, you can't, you can't really say yeah. that to yeah. somebody yeah. in that place. Uh, well, you know, we also... There are so many cultural messages, too, though, that really do say everything from you can't teach an old dog, you know, new tricks to, you know, once you're formed in a certain way, you're formed in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It's it's quite hard to, uh, you know, change. We know this from, you know, say you have a bad habit in tennis. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to change it. It's a non-trivial problem, right? So uh, and when it comes to personalities and the way we live and the way we execute life, uh, yeah, it's especially so. Yeah, cool. But I think I think there is a way to reach those people too. It, it's just in the in the delivery or mm -hmm. or how you frame things, and also if it even has to be you who's the one who's delivering this info. Sometimes they need somebody else yeah. closer to them, or 
they, or some something they ascribe a certain kind of meaning to yep. to convey that message, uh, like a role model or something like that. Not just even just like uh, a random, not a random person, but mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't fit that sort of uh, identity. Yeah, and I think empathy might help too. I mean, if you kind of get the other person to see that, like you understand how hard this is because you went through this yourself. That's sort of right. you know, kind of ego dissolution, whatever lack of a better term. Ego dissolution is hard for everybody. It's not just you. It's hard for any of us to kind of sort of. A, we don't have to like um, disidentify with our beliefs or our kind of thought patterns, but the idea is just to at least take a step back and examine them. And so, from an empathic standpoint, one could say like, yeah, I remember when I was you know kind of first starting off, I was so kind of rigidly holding on to those beliefs because it terrified me like what would, what would happen if I had to change my entire worldview right what would happen to the last I don't know 30 years of my life that I've had this worldview what would happen to my relationships what would happen to all of these different facets of my life it's terrifying sometimes I tell students I give this thought experiment in a class where I say so imagine that there was a uh, device that for 24 hours could you know uh, detect and then put down in a tape all the thoughts that go through your head. Mm-hmm. And then I ask you to come into class and you hand the cassette or the you know thing to the person next to you. Mm-hmm. How would you feel, feel about that? So everybody rightly feels like, I hate that, that would be appalling. I don't want other people to know the random weird stuff that goes through my head. Mm-hmm. So, but I point out, I said, but notice you're not like, don't walk around completely embarrassed that you have all those random weird thoughts all the time. It's because you're not attached to them already. Mm-hmm. They just come in and out. You're like, you know, you know, if you start to reflect on the fact that, gee, you think, wow, that's weird that I think that. Well, that's because you're actually requiring that it be part of you. And, they're, and, and the point is of the exercise is just they're just just like all the random thoughts that pop in and out of your head. You don't sort of you know, judge yourself as the person, you know, a good or a bad person based on the random stuff. Right. You just let it go. And sometimes we can learn to do that with other parts of ourselves, like even with emotional traits. Uh, that we have and yeah so the therapy of desire and emotions is something that and and the breakdown or ego dissolving is something buddhism has some things to say about that it could be helpful yeah right what's scary is one day we might actually have technologies that allow for other people to (laughs) (laughs) your thoughts yeah so fortunate i'll be in some state of nirvana by then but And then so oh, and one of our final questions is going to be, what is pretty much boot shit? And how does that sort of relate oh. to a misunderstanding of Buddhist <laughs> doctrine? Well, no, budget. Oh, budget. Uh-huh. That was budget. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, uh, it's a term that my friend Rob Hogendorn, who is actually, he's, a, he's more of a, much more of a Buddhist. I'm not really a Buddhist. I'm just a friend of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. But uh, Rob Hogendorn and I were once listening. Uh, uh, he's a Dutch guy. Uh, so we, our idea was just this that every religion has its own bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buddhists are just lucky to have their own word for it. Mm-hmm. Budshit, which is distinctively Buddhist bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it comes in various forms. Uh, and uh, sometimes it comes, uh, you know, we see what I have in mind. I mean, it's just really, uh, you know, the idea is that, you know, we have this strain of thought in uh, every religion, like Christians will often say, oh, whatever bad happens, it must be the will of God. You know, that's in the vicinity of bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, mysteries, uh, how many angels can dance on the head of the pin, working things out like that. Bodhisattvas uh, on uh, lotus leaves and things like that. Uh, that's what we refer to as distinctively Buddhist uh, uh, bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, it comes partly sometimes on the 
in poetic forms and it's it's not a big deal every every tradition has its own version buddhists are just as i say lucky to have a really good word for it budget mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah kind of like that book the secret where you pretty much imagine things into being exactly things like that uh-huh. that's right yeah all right alan final questions around anything before we go Oh, actually, yeah. Owen, if we wanted to follow you on social media, uh, where could we find you? Uh, you can only find me uh, uh, not on any social media. Ah. It's a Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> the negation of social media. The negation of, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I pro- it probably will never happen uh, that I'll go on social media. Uh, but thank you for asking. <laughs> but we could definitely pick up, obviously, your book, How to Live a Good Life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, my book on Buddhism is called The Bodhisattva's Brain. Mm-hmm. Buddhism naturalized. Oh, cool. And what are you working on now? I'm working on a book called How to Do Things with Emotions, and it's about multiculturalism and emotions, namely, you know, a city like New York, there are under, about 200 languages spoken in New York. Mm-hmm. 50%, 40% of the people in New York are from born out of the country. You guys know this. Mm-hmm. The question is, are there things that we can learn from other people uh, uh, about how to uh, do our lives. And so I'm very interested in cross-cultural philosophy and uh, anthropology. You know, there are things that happen. Different people come in. Let's just take, say, Chinese culture comes in, and they have an emphasis on you know, respect for the elders. Mm-hmm. I'm in favor of that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe American kids could learn more about, you know, virtues like that and regulating our emotions in different ways if we're more appreciative of the variation in our midst and not always sort of trying to impose the psychology of the dominant culture on people. And, uh, so that's, that's what I'm working on right now. And, um, I keep, I keep working away on a good human life. That's what I'm interested in. And as a therapist, I'm really actually excited and looking forward to that book. I think it's going to be really wonderful. Cool. Yeah. And I mean, obviously thank you so much for coming on. And I feel like we're both one step closer to Nirvana after this show. Uh, <laughs> I like how you said that both. seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasures to talk to you. So thank you very much. Thank you Appreciate so much, Owen. Take thanks, care. Thanks for coming on. All right. Wow. Yeah, that right? was awesome. Super enlightening. That was awesome. Uh-huh. Well, all right, guys. So if you want to follow us, you can always follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Mm hmm. Click like, hit the bell, subscribe, mm-hmm. hit the bell. And then one more thing. And then also find us at the O4L online network under the show section. We are under Seize the Moment podcast.